Welcome back to the White Coat Club. My name is Lindsay and I'm a counselor at Moon Prep. And today I have two of my fellow counselors here with me, Darlene and Nicole. And we'll be talking about the BSMD trends from the 2022-2023 admission cycle. And don't forget to like and subscribe for more BSMD and medical school news updates. So Darlene, will you jump into some of your top acceptances so far this year in 2023? Yeah, um, I saw Case Western um, New Jersey Medical School, NJMS. We saw one from, or we saw a couple from Drexel, a couple from VCU. Um, we even saw one from UPIT. Perfect. Anything you want to add to that, Nicole? Uh, yeah, we saw Penn State, um, Hofstra, Sophie Davis, um, Brooklyn College, Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. That was for BSMD programs. There was a lot this year. Perfect. And yeah, a ton of BSDO programs as well. I guess whenever we say BSMD trends, we're using that term to mean BSDO as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of DO trend or DO acceptances at Nova, um, NY, mm. New Jersey Institute. No, not New Jersey, sorry. NYIT. Yeah, yeah. NYIT, New York Institute of Technology. Um, the LECOM programs kind of all over the country the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. Okay. All right. Now for our BSMD students, especially our younger ones, one of the big stress points is what score do you need? So what do you, do you see as the minimum score? Yeah. It's the threshold for accepted students. Okay. So a 33 ACT was kind of the threshold for accepted students that I saw. Um, I definitely saw a bigger disparity for the SAT, but as low as a 1510 from my students, it's similar. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, one really interesting thing that I saw was someone with a 1380 interviewed at VCU. So I know we are always kind of saying like, try to aim above 1500, but I think even under that, you, if you have a good story and you're able to get interviews. There's and always are... outliers. Every year, there's always outliers like that. So that's great. Yeah. And this is like the first year I've really had text test optional students as well. Um, before I had like a couple kids who went test optional, but it, it didn't necessarily work out. But I think they had other issues with their applications, like not as super high a super strong resume or super high GPA. So it was kind of a couple issues compounded, but this year was the first year I had a student get accepted to Penn State's program as a test optional student. So it is, it is possible, maybe not completely possible or completely likely, but it was possible. That's interesting. Cause I think people always wonder like how, like how optional is test optional? <laughs> like, is it like a recommended or is it more like you know, they're saying it's test optional, but I should take it. And I'll say this about this kid. He did have a good GPA. I want to say he had a 4.0 GPA or nearabouts. And he had a lot of AP scores that he had performed well on the test. So he kind of had proved that he was college admissions ready without necessarily having that, you know, SAT or ACT test. I think he had like a 1370 or so on, on the SAT. And so we were definitely deciding, okay, at this school, it's test optional here. We're going to shoot our shot and submit our scores just because they're not test optional. And even though we're, you know, kind of below the threshold, we're still going to try. So 
now, do you know what, I don't know if we want to go into average scores. Do you can calculate it pretty quickly like this, I think. Off the top of my head, I feel like everyone that I know so far. I'd say 34 and like 1540. Yeah, that's how I feel too. Right. They were definitely over 1500. Um, yeah. I don't have a lot of ACT students, but the one that I did had a 35. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say maybe 35 and 1540. Yeah. My 35 was for Case Western. Yeah. I'd say 30. I'd actually say 35 and like 1540, 1550. This might be something interesting for us to track next too, like the difference yeah. between interview students and like what their average SAT or ACT score was and then of the actual accepted students if that average like significantly increases or if like everyone is still getting mm -hmm. accepted kind of at the same rate and the average doesn't necessarily change um, but that might be something interesting to see too because I did have like a couple of students who had lower SAT scores that were getting pretty good interviews but then I think got more rejections than the average student but I thought they were still like strong interview students so I think mm -hmm. that would to track maybe maybe for next year's podcast on this subject I My one student who got the five oh sorry um he had a 1550 he had the five acceptances for bsmd um but i also think location makes a big difference all of the schools that they were accepted to was in their general area um in their state very local to them so i'm kind of curious to see you know, they didn't apply to many other schools that weren't, but if there were some that weren't, would they still have gotten as many acceptances? Yeah, completely agree. I've noticed that as well. Regional students, especially the East Coast, mm -hmm. uh, Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, you are, you're in a much, I think, stronger position than other students from like, I don't know, even like Virginia, perhaps, even though you've got quite a few programs there, um, yeah. Georgia or places like that. Um, but yeah. California is the worst. <laughs> California is super hard. Um, but I mean, they, they do have their new UCSF, UC Merced program. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Yes. And I know it's new, so we don't know a ton of information about that one. But what I was, when I attended the webinars, it definitely does seem like they're looking for a very small region of the state. Um, so you had someone who got an interview there, right, Darlene? Yeah, um, one of my students, uh, it was like a three-step process, I think. I can't remember now, but um, I know the application was very long. It was like eight 500-word essays, which I was like, I was like, that's like applying to like real med school. <laughs> and um, actually, no, now that I think about it, I think it was one interview for about 30 minutes. It was a traditional interview. Um, they are looking for students who are from underserved areas. That's kind of their preference, but I believe anyone from California who at least has that mission of doing underserved medicine qualifies for that. Um, what they say on their application is preference will be given to applications who are residents of or have ties to the San Joaquin Valley. And so those are like high school students resident res residing in the foothills, um, greater central value will also be valley, sorry. So it means high school students residing in the foothills or like the greater central value will also be considered. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so that doesn't say that if you're from like, you know, Southern California that you won't be considered, especially if you do have like that underserved ties or like if you have a reason for maybe wanting to stay there, but they definitely do want you to explain your ties to the Valley in, in your application. And they'll probably be questioning you that I'm assuming probably in the interview as well. Yeah, UCSF was kind of interesting because it it almost felt more like the student was trying to apply to like a real medical school versus a BSMD. Mm. And this is like a B, the new BSMD, but I mean, also UCSF is like a legit big med school. <laughs> so um, it was kind of interesting to see like the application process, because it's way more in depth than like all the other applications that we worked on this year. Yeah, that was a long one. Okay. And it does seem in general, even though there are some new programs that have popped up, everything is getting more competitive about that, Nicole. Yeah, I mean, I think just the amount of schools that students are applying to has just increased by so much. I think schools are getting a ton more applications than they were in the past. BSMD or BSCO has just gotten so much more wildly popular, um, and they're really expecting the most from these students. Um, a lot of times, families will talk about what is going to look good on a resume, and you know, when are they supposed to have any downtime with all the grades that the courses that they're taking and expecting the high grades that they're expecting. Um, but, you know, I know that Brown had over 4,000 applications this cycle versus they had 3,800 last cycle. Um, Drexel saw a similar increase. They went from, I can't do the math in my head like that. What yeah. They went about 400 as well, 2,300. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah, I think the buzzword BSMD is just going around so much more. I know when we talk to newer families sometimes, Lindsay, I'm not sure if you get this, but it's just something that they've heard of and they're really unaware of just how competitive that they that they are. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these programs have five seats, 10 seats, 20 seats. I mean, there's a few outliers with UMKC, Drexel and Brown's program that will have, you know, more than 60 seats, but those are definitely our outliers. A lot of them will have less than 20. And so that's, I think the important thing to remember is that's why these kids have 1500 on their SAT or higher, because they're so crazy competitive. They can be so picky. Um, they're going to have, and we're going to go into this a lot more about resumes and how to build like a really strong resume too. But those are all things that I think families forget that if you have a 1580 on the SAT and a 4.0 GPA, that's not going to be enough. There's going to be a lot more that you have to be doing. Yeah, they can be absolutely that they can be picky. They can choose, pick and choose the class that they want because they're just getting so many people who are wanting to put their hat in, a ring, in the ring and apply for these programs. Yeah. So speaking of our poor rejected students, Sterling, what did you kind of notice consistently across the board about like your rejected students and maybe who didn't do as well, despite maybe having some pretty stacked resumes? Yeah, so I feel like this is true for med school too. I think people are, or at least admissions, they're, are, they're looking for people who are passionate. Um, and I feel like that term is used like everywhere, like in every <laughs> med school video you watch, everyone's like, be passionate. Um, but longevity 
in your activities really says something about you, right? So med school is a marathon and these people are not even in med school yet. They're, they haven't even finished their undergrad. And so to convince a med school, you know, hey, I'm in this for 12 to 15 years, you have to be able to provide evidence that you're going to commit to that long-term. So I don't know, this year I felt like I saw a lot of different applications. <laughs> um, some people, I think I was really surprised that they didn't do as much and they still got in. But some people, I mean, this year I did see like a 16 page resume and that student didn't get into the places that they wanted. And what's interesting about that is because is yes, they did a lot of research. They did, you know, classes at Harvard, um, a lot of entrepreneurial stuff, model UN, whatever it is, you know, that you can think of, you name it, they probably did it. Right. Mm -hmm. But what does it say about that person? There's only so many hours in the day, right? You have to be able to pick and choose realistically what you're able to commit to. So how do you build a 16 page resume? It's probably a lot of one off things here and there. You know, you know, maybe I volunteered here for three hours. I volunteered at a different place for three hours. I'd spend a couple hours here on my activities. And I think the story that that kind of paints is that you're not really consistent with any one thing, but rather you're doing a lot of little things to kind of check off. Is that something you guys noticed? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that my students had the most success really had deep roots, even last year too, not even just this year, they had deep roots in whatever they were doing, whether it be the volunteering that they did, that's what they had been doing for years, the same place. And yes, maybe it built, maybe they got more of a leadership role as time went on, maybe in ninth grade, it was, you know, they spent two weeks doing it. And then in 10th, they wanted to get reinvolved. And then it just kind of grow, you know, had growth from there. But as far as the acceptances that I saw and the um, it was, it was across the board, I think, you know, maybe not as many activities, but what they were doing, they were very committed to. Yeah. Cause definitely a lot of our kids were pandemic kids. Like they spent a lot of their high school, the first couple of years in virtual activities are maybe a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I've had, you know, new client calls, even this year being like, well, you know, we didn't really get involved with anything. Cause whenever you talk to them and kind of ask them about their resume, they might say like, oh, we're only in a couple things. We didn't really volunteer. We didn't really shadow because the pandemic. And at this point, unfortunately really can't be an excuse anymore because everyone else now is kind of in the same boat. There's a ton of virtual opportunities. There's ways you could still get involved in your community, even if like you were um, really affected by the pandemic and, you know, couldn't, couldn't be out there, couldn't find hospital volunteering. There's a ton of different other things you could have been doing. Um, so there's also like that side of things, you know, having too many activities and then not having enough activities, not having like that depth of different, like hands-on opportunities where you're really growing and like practicing those, those soft skills that a lot of these programs are looking for if it's leadership and maturity. And of course, like passion for things as um, Darlene was talking about, but yeah, we I did also feel like, um, taking what you're passionate about and continuing to do it in different ways. So mm -hmm. instead of playing five different instruments, maybe find two or one that you are really, really love and then go help, you know, the elementary school students 
with lessons or go into a nursing home and perform and take that one thing and just spread it out, showing your love for that in multiple areas. You know, it's maybe it's hard to just continue to volunteer at a blood drive in your town. But then I had one student who volunteered at a blood drive, loved it, felt really, really passionate for it, decided to make a blood drive club at their school. And they had a blood drive at their school and they passed it to other high schools in the area. And it just kind of grew something that they really enjoyed and had a passion for, but continuing it in different ways. Instead of, I volunteered here for two weeks, I volunteered somewhere else doing something completely different for two more weeks and so on and so forth. I think, Lindsay, you had a student that you sent me for interviews who had lower stats, but her resume was just like so passionate. Like she was very passionate about period products for people in the U.S. And so even though she had lower stats, like that's such an interesting story to talk about. And then she got an acceptance. Yeah, that's what I always say. It can help help kind of elevate. It won't fix, you know, maybe a weakness in your rest of your resume, but passion can really go and like really having a lot of impact too. I can't exactly remember like what she, the, the length or the amount of impact she had had, but she had done a lot with it and, you know, been involved in several different organizations and had leadership positions and really was, was heavily involved in it. And that's, you know, that's what a lot of times you want. You want some kid who cares about things at the end of the day. Darlene, that's the student that I sent you for interview prep also. I think <gasps> she was very similar, right? Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Really, really passionate about the type of research that they had done and all of the activities that they had was something that even when we do interview prep, like the smile that went across her face when she would discuss each activity, you can just tell that it was something that she really, really focused on um, instead of yeah, I was in this club at school and, you know, that's what we want to avoid. Did you guys see that statement that Brown released after early decision? They said they, like students who really stood out to them were people who didn't just sit around during COVID. They were actually really proactive in engaging their community and not really letting COVID inhibit that. And I thought that was just a really interesting statement. I completely agree. I feel Mm -hmm. like we've interviewed quite a few BSMD programs now at this point. And that seems to be the reoccurring theme. Like what problem do you see in your community? How have you tried to find like a way to solve it? And it could be something super small. It could be something really big. It doesn't necessarily matter what. I guess like one last thing to say about like activities and like how you spend your time is at the end of the day, we only have 10 activity slots on the common app. We only have so many essays. And so I had some kids, I remember last year who kind of went on that panic, you know, in their senior year summer or, you know, between the junior senior year summer. And they really wanted to add a ton of activities. Cause they're like, oh, I don't have like a lot of research. Let me do like three short programs or, you know, I haven't done X, Y, Z. So let me try and round myself out essentially. And so they did and started like, I think six things between like their second semester of junior year through like the summer. And honestly, most of those things we did not talk about in their resume or, or sorry, we, of course it was on their resume, but on the common app activity list, we didn't get to mention it because there was just so many other things they'd also done. And on the essays, there was, wasn't a lot of room. And of course there wasn't as much depth to those activities either as the ones that they had been doing for a couple of years. 
And so honestly, a lot of those things were almost like a waste of their time because it didn't necessarily lead to any growth for them as like a person or as a student. And then the colleges honestly didn't even know that they had done them. And so that's like one thing to kind of think about as you're, you're doing your activities and like, you know, planning your time is, you know, what's the best use of my time and what can I like feasibly have the most impact doing them? If you have 20 different things, it's going to be a lot, a lot less at the end of the day. I had a student who was kind of similar, like they didn't have any community service. And I think one mistake was, well, not starting earlier. <laughs> that was definitely the mistake. Um, but I think they started in August. So kind of when things were already due, like in terms of the application. And so the way they wrote it was more of like a projected hours, right? Like, you know, activity 10 is I'm going to volunteer and I'm planning to volunteer for the rest of the year. But once you submit the app, like how do they know if you're even going to follow up with that, right? You can't just wait around for the interview. And so starting as early as possible, definitely, <laughs> definitely important. Yeah, I always compare it to like investing for like retirement, which the, you know, <laughs> our 16, 17 year old kids obviously don't care about, but I'm like, hopefully the parents get this. And I'm like, <laughs> when you're younger, like it's a lot less stressful. You just have to do a couple hundred a month and then it's a lot less. But if you start when you're 50, you're in trouble. It's the same thing. If you start even second semester, junior year, you're gonna have to invest a lot of time to get mm -hmm. to like that scope of hours, to get that scope of death, to form those connections, to really learn and to develop anything because it takes time just to get into the swing of things. And so by investing, okay. And we kind of already talked about this but what about consistency in activities? Is it important to continue an activity for all four years or is it okay to jump around a little bit too much or a little bit jumping too much? Um, I always say, I mean, if it's a ninth grader, I say do as much as possible. And if you, I, I was attributed to sports. If you try soccer and you're like, this is going to be my sport and you absolutely hate it. You don't have to keep going. It's okay. <laughs> it's ninth grade. But I think that's why it's important to start so much early on to really find what you love and then stick with those things as consistent as possible. But if you fall out of love with it, I, you know, I'm not going to say continue and keep going. Completely agree. That's it. My philosophy too, especially your freshman year, join those yeah. clubs, join robotics, join science Olympia, join a ping pong club. It doesn't really matter what, because you don't really know what it's going to be like too. Cause sometimes it sounds really cool, but then you get there and they like meet once a quarter and like, they don't really actually do anything. So it's actually like a kind of a waste of your time. It's okay to drop those types of things. If you're not getting anything out of it. Um, so yeah, trying out more things, definitely explore, keep an open mind, explore, and then it's for you. Yeah. I think the only time it's okay to kind of like move on is if you're like evolving, kind of like what Nicole said earlier. Like if you start something like, let's say the music example, right. And then you want to evolve into kind of doing more things integrated into the community, like playing at the nursing home that I feel like makes sense why you're jumping around, not necessarily jumping around, but you're like evolving in some sort of way. But if you're kind of like, you know, I'm going to do ping pong club and then chess club and then music club. And then it, that shows that you don't have any consistency. Yes. Yeah. Drop things and try and add layers to activities. Completely agree. Now, yeah, I think I got this question a lot also with, um, 
electives. So, oh, we did, you know, art in ninth grade, and then she did, you know, art two in 10th grade. And then do we have to do, you know, pottery and ceramics or in studio arts? Should we keep going? I'm like, well, you can be, if it's not something that you're passionate about and you're not doing anything else with it, you can absolutely skip to something else if that's what is going to, you know, best serve you in this moment. But then look at, there has to be some consistency in your application, whether it be in electives or outside, you know, extracurriculars, things like that. Find some consistency, yes, but don't be totally committed to having to take all four years of an art elective, especially when like that. Now, did you guys think passion projects needed for students this year? I think some of them did. I think mm -hmm. there's a difference between a passion project that you do just to do a passion project and a passion project that you like actually thought about and actually really have tried, you know? To, to put in time and effort. Um, impact, I think is the most important thing. Like I could start a nonprofit. I feel like a lot of people will start a nonprofit for college applications. And then what does it actually do? Mm -hmm. And so that's like the most important thing to remember is impact at the end of the day. Um, so I've had some kids who've done some really cool stuff that have like introduced like new legislation in their state or their town or whatever it is. They've, you know, been speakers at, at different organizations, um, you know, across their state. They've, you know, changed, changed things on, on a, a grand scale, but then also like sometimes on a smaller scale. Um, and so I feel like it's more so like, what did you learn out of this passion project? Um, what kind of skills did you display? But yeah, and I think also that has to like balance with the rest of your activities as well. Um, it can't just be something completely random that has nothing to do with anything else that you've been involved in during high school, your electives, your extracurriculars, you know, if it's just something, a one-off thing that you just decided this, um, I think you really have to be emerged in it. Yeah. I feel the same way about that for like research too. Like, I feel like research is like the biggest checks, uh, checkbox on everybody's list. And personally, I'm like, I don't think it makes a difference unless you're super passionate about it. Like my student, um, who did all her research projects in her basement got like three or four BSMD acceptances, right? But you could tell that she's actually passionate about it because mm -hmm. she was thinking about, you know, different um, devices and how to make them, I guess, easier to use or more comfortable so patients would want to use them. And I'm like, that's innovative. That's creative. That actually shows your passion. But, you know, a lot of these research internships are totally pay to play. You go to a big university, you sit there, you take the class. But I feel like. Yes. Yeah. That's what we're going through a lot with our students right now is they're, you know, we're trying to figure out what summer programs to do. And big name universities will have really, really expensive programs that necessary you don't necessarily learn a ton from. Um, so yeah, it is important to see what hands-on applications impact is always my big word with my younger students. Like what kind of impact will this have on you that you couldn't get somewhere else? All right. So another thing that we saw quite a bit with our students is like no, no leniency or no perks for connect or like legacy. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Nicole? Yeah. So I know we had quite a few students who had um, family who went there or siblings who are currently there. And it really just didn't show that they were getting 
more acceptances than other students um, who did not have a um, legacy at the school. Um, I know a lot of schools have kind of come out and made statements that they're not, you know, giving leniency to things like that anymore, but um, it definitely proved that way this year. Um, I also know a lot of times students who want to do, oh, let me do the summer program at Rutgers. Um, it'll be better on my applications. We really don't with that type of thing either. Did you see any this year? No, as we both shake our heads. Like this is <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> No. I think that's one of the biggest things too. You know, you just mentioned they have such big price tags for these summer programs and, oh, we're going to do, you know, the Rutgers summer programs that way we can do, have a better chance. And we're from New Jersey and this will all be great. And it's really, you know, for the price tag, it's not going to be as beneficial as some families would think, unfortunately. Because those are so, so limited in the scope of student that they can attract that it just isn't, ultimately it isn't fair then for everyone. Um, if some family can't afford that $10,000 summer camp program, it doesn't mean that they're going to be like, at a disadvantage. And so mm -hmm. I think, especially with like the, you know, Harvard getting sued for like um, having preference, like for legacies and things like that, University of um, North Carolina also mm -hmm. got, sued. and so, you know, all of the, this litigation is perhaps encouraging them to both be a little bit more guarded about how they are selecting students, but then also you know, look at whatever that might mean. I think it's definitely more about what can you offer now rather than how much can you pay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we were just talking about that with one of like our successful and unsuccessful like Brown students. Who's going to be the better classmate? Like who's going to be contributing to campus? And like, you know, looking at the, the essays and like what the student was kind of the tone that the student was taking it was kind of a no brainer from the accepted to the unaccepted one about which one you would want in your class, you know, which one you think yeah. would be a more productive member. And ultimately, you know, I'm sure that the ex rejected student will do just fine in his life. Um, but ultimately they get to be that picky and they can really see who they think is going to be the most collaborative member of their team. The difference. Um, I think one thing I noticed too for like essays is does do you fit the mission and a lot of the time I feel like people kind of take the shotgun approach where they're like the SMD is so competitive I'm going to apply to all of them <laughs> right and then they don't take time to look through like the specific missions of the school and that's what the schools care about right that's why the mission's in place if they want to carry out a specific mission whether it's you know, research-based, underserved-based, primary care-based, and let's say it's primary care-based, and you're like, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. Well, you don't fit their mission, right? You have to tailor your application to make sure, you know, you are going to capture what they want, but they can also offer you what you want. It has to be, you know, it has to be a match made. It can't just be, I'm just going to apply and then just hope for the best. I think yeah. that's the hardest thing that students struggle with, with the applications too, is those essays of why, why here, why nowhere else? Why do you, are you going to be the best fit for us at this school? And 
I think it gets overwhelming when students have 20 schools on their list that they're writing the same essay for, same prompt, but cool. So. That's why starting early is so important because then you actually have time to dissect each school, what their mission is, what they can offer versus, you know, if the app is due September 15th and you're starting September 1st, you can only make it really generic and try to hope that you make the deadline. Yeah. yeah. And start early in visits too. get on campus, talk to people as much as you can, as early as you can. Mm-hmm. That's I think kids kids will forget until like their senior year or even like around this time of their senior year. Like, you know, oh, maybe I should have gone to visit some of these. Like, what am I actually looking for in a university too? Um, it's something that I think they forget. They forget that it's not just the best name that will accept you or the best program that will accept you, but where are you actually going to be the best version of yourself too? Absolutely. When I worked uh, at the university that I worked at, it was so obvious to see students that wrote about it, had they been on campus or had they not been on campus? You could absolutely tell. You didn't have to look it up to see if they had scheduled a tour. You could absolutely tell who had been there and who had not been there. And who also probably took the time to research for even like 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I believe that for sure. Cause I can tell, I can usually tell that with my students too about. Yeah. Did you take exactly what was on the front page? Of- <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's talk a little about interviews. Uh, Darlene, you're kind of our resident interview expert. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you saw with interviews this year? Yeah, so a lot of MMI places, um, some places asked really difficult questions. So UMKC, I feel like was one of the hardest ones. Um, They are strictly MMI and they just want to make sure, again, you fit the mission, right? So UMKC is very underserved, um, focused. And a lot of their questions ask about underserved medicine. You know, do you have realistic expectations about that? What do you know about the healthcare system and things like that? Um, Drexel was another one kind of later in the season when they had their interviews. And I was like, so surprised because every year I tell students, I'm like, they're not going to ask you this, but I'm going to tell you just in case. And the question is, you know, about Medicare and Medicaid and how insurances work. And I'm always like, I'm going way overboard with this. You don't have to know this, but guess what? This was the one school that actually asked about it this year. Um, It was really interesting because I kind of thought about if people didn't do interview prep or kind of understand what the question was asking, how would they answer it? Because they went pretty in depth with um, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and how those insurance types work, how it affects the populations. Um, yeah, that part was just very interesting to me. Otherwise, traditional interviews were exactly what we thought they were going to be. Tell me about yourself. Why do you want to come to the school? Why do you want to do medicine? And I think that was probably the hardest question. Um, why do you want to do medicine? So even though students wrote you know, tons and tons of applications about this specific question, when it comes to presenting that information orally, I feel like everyone kind of forgot what they were, like what they wrote about or what they were going to say. So 
I guess my biggest advice there is just make sure you reread your application, you have your stories lined up, practice, practice, practice. Yes. And I think the important thing too for students is I, I always tell them like, don't write out your answers like word for word, because then you sound like a robot and you don't sound like a human. Your passion oftentimes disappears because you're reading off the page. And so practice, but you know, be fluid in how you practice for sure. You know, it's okay if this time you include X, Y, Z detail, and then you say things different ways. It's okay if you are including like some filler words, not a ton of filler words, but you know, some, because you want it to be natural and you don't want to sound robotic. So yeah, practice is definitely important. And I think recording yourself practicing is really important too. So then you can go back and like, look and see, am I talking super, super fast? Am I, you know, using a ton of likes and ums and things like that? Am I like coming across like a real person who really wants to come to this university or this DSND program or whatever it might be? And I think that that's something that kids, kids forget about too, because it kind of sucks looking at your mistakes and watching yourself on videos and no one wants to do that. And I, I understand that completely. Um, but it is an important part of the process because it, you know, the interviews that you're so close to getting accepted. A lot of times we see like what a 30 to 50% acceptance rate from interviews. And so we want to make sure that you're on the right side and the kids who are getting accepted tend to be the ones who really do put in, I think that extra mile, just like with everything else in their applications. Yeah. The recording definitely. And the students are always so apprehensive. I do not want to record. I don't want to watch this over. And I'm usually saying, okay, we're going to hit record and maybe put it on mute and watch your body language and don't even listen to yourself. Just watch your body language. And then play it, don't watch the screen and just listen to yourself. And so it takes a little bit of like, I guess the cringe worthiness out of it, listening and seeing at the same time. Um, and then typically during the next session, they come back. Yeah, I saw it and I listened to it and I'm definitely going to do a lot better. So it's definitely worth it. Like, do you mean like in the interviews? Yeah. Like in the Probably the MMI, although it, it did pop up into some traditional interviews too. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting too, that they kind of are putting them almost not quite in medical settings, but like sometimes like a little bit more medical settings than I would have thought a BSMD candidate like would be put into. Like, I know there was one school that, you know, one of them, the, the, the student to deliver bad news after like someone got a cancer diagnosis or something. And so these are kind of like heavy heavy questions about like how a, a 17, 18 year old kid would handle it. Um, I think the hardest thing that I saw for students with like the ethic questions is honestly just being to articulate why they chose to do something and why they chose not to do something too, um, to kind of exploring those paths. Um, but overall, I feel like it's one of those things that once again, kind of comes down to practice and doing doing just like a better understanding too of and evaluating what your own ethics are and you know what ultimately hopefully a, a good physician is going to be, be be portraying as well yeah, yeah I, I think the biggest issue is how you got to your answer I think a lot of times they just want to take a stand immediately and it was really hard to get students to come up with the cultivation of how they got that response and articulate that instead of just jumping one way or another yeah and things aren't black and white Exactly. 
Yeah. That's the hardest part, finding the gray area. <laughs> what I always try to point out to people, I'm like, you know, life is not a math answer, right? Mm-hmm. It's not four plus three is seven. You know, it, in ethics, four plus three could be five. You know, yeah. that's what it could be. <laughs> And sometimes it will be, and sometimes it'll be three and the exact same situation. And it makes no sense. And that's okay. Yep. And I know we talked a lot about that on one of the other podcasts a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah. The MMI. Okay. Let's see. Um, I guess just to like, kind of recap, if you had to kind of put down the top qualities that a BSMD program is looking for, either like of the students. Um, consistent, passionate. I know passionate gets thrown around a lot, but really passionate, true for. I would say for me, it's proactive, Mm -hmm. um, being engaged in a community. Someone told me they wrote like a fantastic essay about being very community oriented, um, and what their community has done for them and why it's important for them to give back. And I think I just thought it was interesting because it feels like a very bland essay, <laughs> but it also makes total sense why they have a ton of interviews and acceptances. I'm also going to say personable. Um, I think in the Brown video that we watched of the student in, in one of our meetings a couple weeks ago, um, the one that got accepted and um, the essays and the students that I know that got accepted and just the personality behind those students, um, I think is really big also. It's really something that's kind of harder to teach or just go out and get. Like it's not an experience you just go find. Uh, I think it just has to come from within, but I think definitely someone that has that charisma to them has gotten more acceptances. I think who's able to, to do their personality, I think a little bit better in essays. Mm-hmm. I know we didn't talk a ton about essays, but that's, I think a, definitely a huge thing is just that humanistic side yes. of them, seeing them come alive off the page. Because if we think about it, if we've got a 4.0 student, two 4.0 students, you know, 1500s on the SAT, similar extracurriculars, you know, been volunteering in hospitals, shadowing, you know, research, whatever it might be clubs and presidents of things, what makes them kind of stand out a lot of times can be those essays. And then later on, of course, the interviews where they're able to showcase like kind of those, those soft skills. Cause I feel like that's kind of the advantage of a BSMD program versus the traditional route is like, they kind of want students to take that time to develop and like explore some of them, of course, explore like non-medicine interests as well. And so having those students who can do that already and who kind of have that outside interest some programs, that's what they're looking for. I think an independent thinker too is another one I would throw on the list. Like someone who doesn't just do all the check boxes. Because I think it's kind of obvious, right? If you're like three months of uh, community service, three months of research, and there's not really like, again, like Nicole said, consistency. Um, but, you know, why are passion projects so beneficial in an application it's because it shows that you can think outside of the box and that's kind of what they're looking for a doctor in like in terms of qualities for doctors right they want someone who could be independent no one's going to spoon feed you information 
in undergrad or med school or residency. And so, yeah, I feel like just being really independent and doing things that you like, that's not maybe necessarily the norm that can make you stand out a lot. That's what I always say in my new client calls to like perspectives is I say, there is not like a checkbox. Like, you know, we, you do these four things and you're going to get in because mm -hmm. if everyone looks the same, how are you going to stand out? And so having, having those passions, having those interests, whatever they might be and doing things because you want to do them will help at the end of the day. I think a lot of the times. So yeah, completely, completely agree with the follow your passions, follow your interests and try and have that, that big impact. I will say one of my students who got into Case Western had zero research. That's yeah. I think what shocked me about that is Case Western is like, it's probably the top BSMD right next to Brown now. And mm -hmm. I think it's such a big research institution. People expect them to all have research, but he had so many shadowing hours. He did a lot of stuff um, within just his school community, like a lot of leadership positions. And I feel like that's what made him stand out. So even though he didn't have something that people consider a really big checkbox, it wasn't a deficit to him, right? Because he obviously- yeah. Any activities that you think are kind of a must have for BSM? Um, I know we talk a lot about shadowing and everyone wants shadowing, but I also saw a lot of volunteering in, you know, a medical setting or in a nursing home. It doesn't have to be specifically shadowing, but, you know, food and beverage cart at a hospital or um, nursing homes, things like that. It doesn't have to be the specific. I didn't see this year that students that got accepted had specific fly on the wall shadowing. Just any sort of community engagement. I don't even think it, it has to be medical. I feel mm -hmm. like as long as, like we said, as long as you're consistent, the longevity matters. Um, if you're passionate about specifically what you're volunteering in, I feel like those were the people that I saw got accepted. And I think what you just said too is important that it doesn't necessarily have to be in medicine. And I think some people forget that, that they only give value to like our medicine related activities. Um, and then that kind of non-medicine side of things is still an important thing for you to be developing and still a good area. It could be tennis. It could be, it could be something with coding. It could be honestly anything because those skills that you're still gaining can be really valuable and could be applied to medicine potentially later on too. I think another thing I saw too, is like teaching, like mm -hmm. tutoring people in communities. I feel like a lot of people will start like tutoring services um, for free in their community, like younger students for like elementary or um, middle school, even some high school students. But it makes a lot of sense, right? If you're mastering a subject and you want to be able to educate, that's what we do in medicine all the time, right? You're always educating patients. And so the skills are totally transferable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of my like favorite passion projects that a student did this year was it was kind of, I guess it was actually during the pandemic, but he loved tennis and like was on a tennis team and like a tennis captain and like, you know, helped out with like the tennis, like special Olympics team. But then when the pandemic hit, of course, like all those things kind of got canceled. And so what he started doing was he started teaching like lessons, like one-on-one -on -one lessons to like women over the age of 45, which is like such a random 
group, but like, that's what he started doing. And it actually was really valuable because like these women obviously were completely different age than him, you know, just different life experiences than him had a lot more life experience, but no tennis experience. And so like, he really struggled in the beginning to be able to be confident and to like, you know, give feedback to these women and we were competing and they were doing all these types of things, but you know, in the beginning they didn't do so well and he had to learn. And so we talked about this a ton in his essays because, because he had to gain maturity, he had to gain those leadership skills. And as a doctor, it's not like you're only going to be working with people that are younger than you, or like, you know, who are less smart than you or whatever it might be. You're going to be working with so many different other types of people. And so like, you know, obviously tennis maybe doesn't have anything to do with medicine in the future, but he gained so many skills that I think he'll be able to transfer into any field, honestly, that he would want to go into in the future. That's super interesting. Yeah. How he started doing it, but that's, that's how he's, you know, he spent a ton of time. And like I said, a ton of essays we wrote about that too. That's awesome. I have a lot of students who've done it for younger kids, but never older adults. So that's really cool. I don't know how he found these women, but he had like <laughs> six that he was like working with. And it always kind of cracked me up that this like little 17 year old kid was, was teaching all these, you know, old quote unquote ladies how to play tennis. That's awesome. Um, what about leadership? I know we talked a little bit about leadership, but how important do you the applicant? At the top of the list, very important. As many leadership skills as you can get, um, either in school or out of school. That's also why I like passion projects, because I feel like it's like a two for one, right? Yes, you're passionate and you're creative, but then at the same time, you have to have the leadership skills to develop that. and. I think what makes it an interesting story is if you fail at first at your passion project, you learn what to do better the next time. And that is some of the best qualities of a leader, right? If they kind of can figure out what works and what doesn't, and then teach other people about what they learned. That's yeah, I completely agree. It's funny you say that too, because that was a conversation I was having kind of unrelated to moon prep. But, you know, about how a successful student, a successful person tends to be the one who learned how to fail when they were younger, when it was low risk that, you know, maybe you made a little bit of mistakes, like trying to market your, your passion project or how to like, you know, do whatever you're trying to do. But who really cared? Like, you know, you failed and it's not like you went in debt for like years or, you know, you got these huge repercussions against you. It, It didn't matter. You failed and it was low risk, but you learned. And that's the important thing. And that's why passion projects are ultimately can be so valuable that being a leader in these clubs are so valuable is you learn your style. You learn how to communicate with people. You learn, you know, what's more successful and what's not successful. And that hopefully will make you be a more productive physician and just like a more trusted physician. But all my other students, I don't think we. Cool. I guess the last thing then is just some, some housekeeping items about new programs we saw and some cancellations. Um, so some big news, we already kind of talked about the UC Merced one, um, but maybe Darlene, you can kind of dive in college pathway that has just popped up too. Yeah, so I don't know when this first came out, but I know UCSF Fresno just joined. Um, so the California system, or I guess the UC system is coming out with a new program specifically for students who are in community college in California. Um, 
they are paired with most of the big UC medical schools. So UC Davis, UC Riverside, UC SF Fresno, and UCSD. Um, I think you have to take 12 units or credits at a community college, and then you're able to apply for this program where you're guaranteed a spot in medical school and you actually get special advising. So they actually help you get, uh, or they help you transfer into a UC school to finish up your undergrad and then you will matriculate into the med school. So I think it's a really interesting program. Um, a lot of students who start out at community college may not necessarily think about med school or may think of it as, you know, kind of like a far off dream, but I kind of like that they're opening up that to capture different types of students and also helping them finish their degree as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's so great too, because some kids maybe like didn't, especially our pandemic kids, maybe didn't develop like the study skills that they need to be successful in medical school. And so having a like lower risk at community college potentially could help them transition maybe even smoother into, into college and then into hopefully medical school later on. So I feel like it is going to be a great program for a wide variety of different students. Oh and yeah, then, just the financial aspect of it as well. Could be huge for some, for some kids. It's a good one. And then also um, Indiana University, the Indianapolis campus is going to start up a new BSMD program for next year. So for 2023, 2024, not a lot of information is known at this time. And I honestly think that they're still kind of ironing out the details as well. Um, so I believe it's going to be at like the main university, like um, College of Medicine campus in Bloomington for the IU School of Medicine is where they're going to be paired. And of course, it's going to be open to high school seniors, but right now they don't know MCAT requirements or GPA requirements or SAT, ACT requirements or anything like that. So I'm sure we'll dive into podcast. I talk about the programs that got canceled. Yeah, um, Boston is no longer coming back. I know we had a lot of students who were really excited to apply to that one in the last couple of years, but that one's no longer. Um, and then Rice as well um, will be canceled. But not their other feeder programs too. Some people panic, but the Baylor-Baylor connection is still going. I'll do that. I think that's it for us today. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of White Coat Club. Um, join us next week and don't forget to like and subscribe to get updated.